Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast with your hosts, Chris Jennings and Dr. Mike Brazier. Today we're being joined by a very special guest, former chief scientist at Ducks Unlimited, Dale Humberg. Uh, we recently had Dale on to talk about NAWAMP and uh, the North American Waterfowl Management Plan. And today, you know, I've got Dr. Mike Brazier with me. We've got Dale back on. They're going to get into what are considered the joint ventures, the actual, you know, habitat and very specific species aspects of uh, NAWAMP. Dale, thanks for joining us again. Good morning. Uh, nice to be here. Thanks. Can you uh, go ahead and we'll go ahead and start by just explaining at, a, at another really high level um, what these joint ventures are in reference to the North American Waterfowl Management Plan, and what are they designed to do? Yeah, the the joint ventures are critical to the implementation of the North American Plan. And the, the key part of it is that even though we recognize that waterfowl are international in their the scale of migration, uh, wintering, breeding, and so on and so forth, the nature of our management actions really are more regional than they are international. And so in order to do that effectively, we need to rely on regional partnerships that are made up of um, the the state agencies, the the federal entities that are in that part of the world, the non-governmental organizations like Ducks Unlimited, and landowners. And so within a particular region, the birds are going through different biological processes and so on and so forth. So the nature of our management has to manage to deliver um, the, the biological needs of the birds at the scale at which uh, they're, they're needing them at that time of the year, um, whether it be during the, the habitat, um, excuse me, whether it's during the time of the year in which they require breeding habitats the time of the year in which they're migrating or the time of the year in which they're, they're wintering. And so the joint ventures provide that regional emphasis on management and conservation delivery. Yeah. I try and explain that I have a, I have a really killer stocking cap that I wear all the time. That is the uh, rainwater basin joint venture. Um, and I get a lot of comments on it cause it has a speck right on the front of it. And people are like, Oh, that's great. Um, but, you know, I try and explain that aspect as well, that, you know, these massive waterfowl management plans are put together at an international level, kind of like you explained. But but it even goes down all the way down to a very specific, uh, like just like the rainwater basin, it's a very specific habitat. And it's also very specific to the life cycle needs of waterfowl. And Mike, I'll go ahead and bring you in on this because I know that you worked, you know, a, a bunch in the Gulf Coast joint venture. Can you kind of explain what that joint venture was and, and any other, you know, kind of topics of regarding joint ventures. Absolutely. And this is fun to be on this, this episode with Dale, because uh, he and I have intersected quite a bit over the years and uh, he brings a certain perspective and I can bring a certain perspective because for the, uh, as well, because for the past 13 years, well, I guess the past 13 years prior to last December, I worked as a staff member, a full-time staff member of the Gulf Coast Joint Venture. My office was in Lafayette, Louisiana co-located with uh, the rest of the Gulf Coast Joint Venture staff, uh, but I was a Ducks Unlimited employee, on the books as a DU employee, and that's rather unique among this joint venture world. There are some other examples out there, but 
I had a lot of practice trying to explain what these regional joint venture partnerships are. Uh, most when you hear joint venture, most people think of some sort of financial venture. You know, some uh, two or more companies come together, they marshal their resources resources in order to acquire some other business or something or pursue some some new idea. This joint venture. Well, this business term became applied to the regional implementation of this grand North American waterfowl management plan. There are 21 habitat-based joint ventures uh, currently. At the, at the outset, I believe there were six habitat-based joint ventures across the six most important geographies for waterfowl in North America. And, and there, now there are also three species-based joint ventures, black duck joint venture, arctic goose joint venture, and sea duck joint venture. Their focus is primarily on understanding uh, the inner workings of those groups of birds. But uh, I explained it at each of these regional scales. I explained it like this. If you think back prior to the North American Waterfowl Management Plan, you had all these partners. Take the Gulf Coast, for example. You had had all these state partners from the four states governing the Gulf Coast Joint Venture Region, Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama. Each of those fishing game agencies within that state was doing their own thing to support waterfowl populations. And then you also had the federal government. Then you had NRCS. Then you had other entities that wanted to do good things for waterfowl. But in theory, they're kind of all doing their own thing, not all necessarily pulling in the same direction. That's what the regional implementation of the North American Waterfowl Management Plan brought about through these joint venture partnerships. A formalized group, uh, formalized partnership of these key players in waterfowl and wetlands conservation within a given geography. Uh, those groups, those representatives from each of those organizations get together a couple of times a year. They have a staff in these joint venture offices. Uh, the funding for those offices comes largely from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, although state agencies and some uh, private groups, uh, some industry and, and other uh, NGOs contribute funding to these positions. That office is sort of the engine for the planning at this regional scale. And that planning ties back to the North American Waterfowl Management Plan and its recommendations. Those representatives come together through a board, a Gulf Coast Joint Venture Management Board. They come together twice a year. They maintain these communications. They agree on or endorse or help or develop collaboratively plans for the implementation of, uh, of the NAWAMP, uh, habitat conservation in support of the NAWAMP. So then each of those representatives take those recommendations and those plans back to their own agencies and their field staff. And so that's the way you go from a NAWAMP down to a regional planning mm -hmm. entity, uh, that being the Joint Venture Management Boards, and then they disperse that recommendations the recommendations out to their uh, their individual agencies. So that's how you get all these different groups together. It doesn't just happen by chance. It takes sustained engagement, sustained deliberate effort. Yeah, and and this this may be a, probably a question for either one of you, but uh, you know, I'll ask Dale it kind of that that middle process from you know we're, we're talking about going from NAWAMP into the joint venture, which is kind of the implementation of of some of this NAWAMP planning. But where is that middle, who's making that middle decision as far as, you know, you said you went from six joint ventures to 21 habitat-based joint ventures and three species. Who is uh, leading that charge and, and who's sitting around and discussing, all right, well, you know what, let's add a uh, habitat-based joint venture for this region. Who's doing that, Dale? A lot of it is um, 
developed locally or regionally um, and then advanced to the, the North American uh, Waterfowl Management Plan Committee. Um, and so uh, a lot of it is the result of regional partnerships that almost develop organically or have been associated in the past that are looking for um, more formal and structured uh, input um, and uh, some funding opportunity as well. Um, and so over time, as you might imagine, uh, from those initial six, uh, there were joint ventures almost immediately saying, well, hey, how about us? Uh, we provide some real important contributions to waterfowl management as well, and we, we kind of got left out here. Um, and so there were folks that, like I said, organically developed this relationship, uh, developed a proposal, advanced that uh, as um, as the, the next possible joint venture. The Playa Lakes joint venture was established in the late 1980s, for example, as one of the very first beyond that um, initial six. The species joint ventures emerged about the same time. Um, Arctic Goose joint venture in the late 80s as well. Uh, we developed a strategic plan in 89, I believe, for the Arctic Goose joint venture um, with an acknowledgement that in some instances, um, the regions that weren't represented initially, and in the case of Arctic geese, some of the species that weren't represented completely or adequately in the initial plan needed to be included as well. And so um, a lot of it just occurred as a process of, of partners seeing an opportunity, seeing a need that maybe wasn't entirely addressed in the initial plan. And, and plans from 1986 all the way to 2018 have continued to evolve, recognizing those changes in uh, responsibilities and relationships and, and needs. Well, one of the things that's probably worth mentioning here, Dale, is the the diversity of partners involved in these different joint ventures. And and this varies. If, if there's any of our listeners have any uh, intersection with joint ventures or have an opportunity to engage with joint ventures in the future, it would probably be important for them to have, this, uh, have a bit of context about who are these partners. Across the entire uh, spectrum, you have your usual suspects, if you will, like your state and federal uh, natural resource agencies or game and fish agencies. Then there are the, the NGOs, whether it be Ducks Unlimited, Delta Waterfowl, the Nature Conservancy. American Bird Conservancy is also a partner in some joint ventures. I think Audubon uh, may be a partner in some as well. But there, there are also uh, partners that you might say are non-traditional participants in our historically, traditionally uh, non um Historically, they would be non-traditional participants uh, in our natural resource conservation, and those would be folks like ConocoPhillips. That, that's a, they're a great example. They're a big partner across several different joint ventures because of their their ownership of such large tracts of, of of property, and they want to do to do good uh, uh, by, by in being stewards of the natural resources and wetlands across their properties, and so. Uh, there's you look across the the joint venture community there are other uh, other partners as well that you may not think about but that's one of the other beauties of this is that it's it's a non-regulatory effort that's the other thing we haven't mentioned yet uh, joint ventures do not uh, have a seat at a harvest regulation table they also don't have a seat at any other regulatory table so 
it's a it's an idea around which many people can coalesce uh, and and do so do so in a way that's non-confrontational. That's largely, I think, uh, one of the reasons for as to why it's been so successful. Has that been your experience as well, Dale? It certainly has. Um, the opportunity for folks regionally that have uh, pretty much the same uh, necessary delivery, if you will. Uh, we, we all agree what conservation delivery needs to be in this region, but what's my particular role? And so as uh, a state person, a federal person, NGO, um, like you say, corporate involvement, even private landowners can in that common forum agree on what the, what the primary delivery needs to look like, then begin to ask, well, then what's my role in that? And so it really, in addition to having that consolidated idea of what needs to be done, it also steps it down into individual responsibility. So people can see themselves as part of the delivery and ultimately part of the success of waterfall management at that scale. There's one other role that uh, joint ventures play in this overall waterfowl management uh, community that, uh, that we probably need to speak about. We've touched on it already in a couple of places, but it bears emphasizing. And that specifically is the role that joint ventures play, and I probably should say joint venture offices and joint venture staff, and the role they play in connecting the science to on-the-ground planning and conservation delivery. Now, oftentimes, joint venture staff work with our, our research partners, whether those be at universities or whether they be federal or state agencies. Um, but uh, in, in, in those instances, a lot of times the university researchers will actually be conducting the work to answer specific questions that joint venture partnerships have related to the science and how it relates to conservation. conservation. But in, in other cases, joint venture offices have science staff. All, all joint venture offices have some level of science staff. And those staff members will actually be responsible for conducting some of the science, whether that be synthesizing existing information and incorporate incorporating that into some of our biological planning models. Uh, but also in some cases, it involves the development of what we refer to as uh, decision support tools, spatial, spatially explicit decision support tools. And essentially what those are, they're very common within, the, within our, our joint venture community. Uh, and, and that's a, a very prominent way by which we connect the science to where we need to be doing work. And it essentially amounts to synthesizing what we know about the ecology of a species and its interactions with the habitat, and then incorporating that with geospatial data layers to identify places on the landscape where, based on, on our understanding of the ecology of the species, we would expect our conservation delivery, our conservation efforts to yield the greatest biological gains. And so the, the, the connection of the science to the conservation is a really important part of what joint ventures do. They serve, I often described it, as joint ventures serving as these critical nexuses between science and management and ensuring that the habitat we're putting on the ground, we're, putting, we're doing so in the places and the amount and in the, the manner in which uh, the, the, the science tells us is of greatest need. And so, uh, Dale, with that said, with that kind of additional coverage of, of the, the role of joint ventures and in science uh, within this enterprise, it's, we probably need to transition now to talk briefly about how the NAWAMP has been subjected to and is subjected to periodic updates. I believe we've now seen five updates 
the original plan was developed in 1986, and I think we've now gone through five updates. So talk uh, at a high level, if you could, about the importance uh, of these updates and how it influences uh, what we do in support of the North American Waterfowl Management Plan. Probably one of the most notable features of the North American plan was uh, a mandated requirement to periodically revisit through an update um, and in 2012, actually, a revision of the plan itself. The value of having that required revisiting, if you will, is that it ensures that it stays current. It stays current with changes in landscape condition, stay um, current with changes in the philosophical um, and political environment within which we work. And so the plan has gone through a number of different uh, updates and revisions. Um, in the early 1990s, uh, there was an acknowledgement that uh, needed to expand the, the partnerships that were involved. Um, early on, Mexico was not a signatory of the plan. And so in the early 90s, um, they were added. And, and so we expanded the commitment to waterfall management even beyond the broad um, U.S. and Canadian partnership that was in place already. Um, by the late 1990s, there was a recognition that those habitats that we manage are important well beyond waterfowl. There's a number, um, hundreds of different bird species that require wetlands throughout some part of their annual cycle. And so expanding the vision of the plan as well acknowledged that wetlands play an important role for waterfowl, but also an important role well beyond that. In the early 2000s, there was a recognition that that we, through all the research that we had done, through our experience with implementing different management actions and so on, had gained knowledge uh, biologically, um, ecologically, that we perhaps had not adequately applied to our planning. And so in, the, uh, in 2004, the plan really focused on strengthening that biological, ecological foundation of what the North American plan was to deliver. Perhaps the most notable change in the last decade plus uh, occurred with a revision of the plan in 2012. Now, the reason that it's called a revision is that we fundamentally took a step back and said, now, what are we really after with waterfall management? It's no surprise that two of the key goals of that plan were unchanged from what they were in 1986, and that habitat conservation and conservation of populations. The key addition in 2012 was a recognition that people are an important element of the plan as well, not just as an uh, intended outcome. Um, early on, there was an assumption that if we have good habitat and we have good birds, people are going to be satisfied, going to be happy, whatever. Um, in 2012, there was a recognition that fundamentally, People and waterfowl conservationists were a fundamental goal of the plan itself, not just an outcome. Um, that in 2018, with the most recent update, was just hardwired into a whole lot of what we do. And much of the planning now acknowledges that without that landscape of social support, landscape of waterfowl conservation support, um, we're not going to be successful. It's especially important nowadays with the changes that we're seeing societally in uh, people's uh, 
um, exposure to the outdoors, um, their connection to ecological processes and the day in and day out, the things that, that 50 years ago we occurred naturally just because most of us grew up on the farm or at least had uh, grandfathers and, and uh, relatives that grew up on the farm. Nowadays, we're so disconnected that acknowledging that connection going forward is going to be really important. Thus, that third key objective in the plan of people is a, is a key element. I don't know what the next update will look like, but I'll guarantee that five to 10 years from now, it'll look different based on our experience and emerging science, emerging management experience, and so on over the next several years. The Ducks Unlimited Expo, May 15th, 16th, and 17th, 2020 at the Texas Motor Speedway in Fort Worth, Texas. Interactive villages, shooting, archery, dogs, fishing, kayak, canoe, 4x4 off-road tracks, ATV, UTV track, industry experts, demonstrations, exhibitors, and more. The Ducks Unlimited Expo, everything outdoors. The ultimate playground for the outdoor enthusiast. The Ducks Unlimited Expo. Visit www.duckexpo.com. Um, can you kind of explain to our listeners, you know, in more detail that about the importance of people, I should say, in being involved with this? And, and it's not just having knowledge of an AWOMP or even, but it's, you know, the, as the number of even hunters overall decline, that impacts funding in different ways. And so um, it's interesting to see that, you know, NAWAMP is updated in this and recognizes that, but it's something that, you know, our our listeners need to know. And can you kind of talk about that in a sense that what made them, what became the eye opener for, you know, you all involved in NAWAMP that's like, oh man, like we, we're going to need these people. And what was it specifically? Yes, uh, certainly. And you, you've, you've hit on it uh, uh, quite well, actually. Um, the perhaps most black and white nature of uh, uh, people as a fundamental goal of the plan does relate to conservation support. Um, you know, hunters all the way back into the 30s with the establishment of the duck stamp and so on and so forth have been fundamental to support for waterfowl conservation. If it stops there, um, if we primarily view people as a way to support waterfowl conservation, um, it's probably deficient. When we think instead of how waterfowl and wetlands add to the quality of life, add to the value that people place on the outdoors, we begin to get into something that's perhaps a little less well-defined, but is really, really important. Um, the result is rather than viewing people as a... Uh, an objective um, of of acquiring the funds necessary to manage waterfowl, we see people as the primary recipient of good waterfowl and wetlands management. Uh, again, get to back to quality of life and those types of things. And so the value of people has been something that um, probably has been viewed historically as a means to an end, but now is view, being viewed as an end in itself. And so I, I think that's fundamentally uh, what's, what's occurred. Why has that occurred? Well, as you pointed out, um, we've gone from about 2.5 million active waterfowl hunters in the U.S. down to about a million over the last decade or so. 
And the result is the number of individuals that actively participate has changed dramatically. So the question emerges, well, where's the support for waterfowl conservation going to come from in addition to waterfowl hunters? Not instead of, um, not in lieu of, but in addition to folks that value waterfowl as um, an opportunity to hunt and enjoy the marsh and so on. Um, and so I think that's, that's really critical. Hearing you talk about the NAWAMP update reminded me of another topic worth mentioning. I'd be remiss if, if, if I didn't. One of the recognitions along the way, as has been alluded to through your reference of some of the updates, was that wetland conservation benefits way more than waterfowl. And so joint ventures, as they were getting up on their feet, began to tout these benefits uh, to, to more than just waterfowl. Simultaneously, the joint venture partners, these, these partner organizations, began to recognize the power of the formalized JV partnerships in leveraging the collective resources across all those organizations. And those, those organizations individually each had as part of their mission the, uh, the, the desire, the need to do habitat conservation work for, uh, for all migratory birds, quite frankly, beyond waterfowl. We're talking about land birds. We're talking about shore birds. We're talking about water birds. And joint venture organizations or, or the organizations that made up the joint venture began to recognize the power of getting together and pulling in the same direction. And, and one of the updates uh, in, in, encouraged joint ventures to formally embrace habitat delivery, conservation planning on behalf of migratory birds uh, beyond waterfowl. And, and slowly through the years, that's essentially what all joint ventures have done in that they now formally identi identify themselves as uh, partnerships for delivering on behalf of shorebirds, landbirds, waterbirds, and of course, waterfowl. Also, uh, the joint ventures actually are, are called now, uh, referred to as migratory bird joint ventures and there's a website where folks can uh, can go and learn about those joint ventures at a at a high level there it's and that website is mbjv.org and, and and so picking up from that as we transitioned to the new social objectives in the 2012 North American Waterfowl Management Plan and then the ex explicit incorporation of humans into the work that we were doing and we needed to do it basically meant that not only did we as joint ventures and joint venture partners have to start thinking about uh, the, the needs of people and the desires of people that uh, most, most appreciate waterfowl as a natural resource, but also the groups of people that interact with, appreciate, and admire those other groups of birds, land birds, shore birds, and uh, water birds. So, uh, Dale, I guess here's the question to you. As you've interacted with joint ventures over the over the past few years, what have been some of your experiences and how would you describe uh, the manner in which JVs are embracing and delivering on these social objectives for waterfowl, but also beyond waterfowl? Well, certainly, um, you know, the most obvious uh, and one we've talked about already is uh, a recognition that uh, that waterfowl hunters, traditional base of support, um, are still going to be an important um, uh, base of, of waterfowl conservation support going into the future. At the same time, there's a recognition that waterfowl hunters alone um, are not the only ones that benefit and not the only ones that support waterfowl and wetlands conservation going forward. And so the joint ventures have, um, to their credit, 
identified those regional um, partnerships, those regional uh, areas of emphasis that different groups, in addition to hunters, see as values of the landscape. Everything from the role of uh, the Playa Lakes Joint Venture is a good example of this, the role of, of playas in providing groundwater, water supplies, water quality, and so on. Things that maybe historically we didn't really think about uh, completely because we were so caught up in how many wetlands are needed for the ducks that we're intending to uh, support. Um, and ultimately harvest in some instances. And so the joint ventures have really embraced the social aspect of this because it really uh, allows those regional partnerships to focus on the things that regionally are important to the people that they're providing for. And they're different from region to region. The plan itself acknowledges that traditional support for hunters is one key um, measurable. But it also identifies that broader public support's important and that landowner importance to waterfowl management is key as well. And so now we've begun to step this down well beyond just the waterfowl hunters that maybe we relied on and focused on historically to other groups that benefit, whether they be bird watchers, whether they be waterfowl hunters, whether they be folks that manage the landscape um, on private lands that support this as well. The process has been so useful because social science, I mean, really explicit social science, has been incorporated into this process. Historically, we made a lot of assumptions about waterfowl hunters, about what motivates them, about bird watchers, what motivates them and so on, why would they be involved, where are they involved. So many of those assumptions have really been brought forward as testable, scientifically testable hypotheses. And so now we're moving forward saying, well, what, what is it about our hunting population that we either uh, assumed in the past that was true or maybe that wasn't? Among those are things like, for example, we've got a million waterfowl hunters out there, but only about 15 or 20 percent participate every single year and shoot more than 10 ducks every year. The large majority of waterfowl hunters kind of are in and out from year to year. And so this process has brought to the, the fore the opportunity to really revisit some of our social objectives, how we apply those social, the, the increasing social knowledge to management of both habitat, the birds, and opportunities for birders as well as waterfowl hunters. And so uh, kind of a long drawn out response but it's complicated. It's really, really been enhanced by incorporation of, of strong social science. It, it is. It's. I've told people as we as we embarked on this this new era, it's incredibly exciting. It's incredibly complex, and it's also incredibly intimidating in in some respects. But it's the excitement is really when it, what I get most excited about is two things in this in this. Um, in this realm of the social objective, social aspect of it. One, trying to better understand the landowner's motivations and getting them, figuring out how we can better engage them in habitat conservation that aligns with their needs. Not just what the birds need, but what, what aligns with the landowner's needs, but also provides benefits to birds. We understand what benefits the birds. Now we're thinking more deliberately about what do the landowners need? What 
what aligns with their motivations. That's really cool. The other thing that's really cool is not only do we think about what the what the birds need, birds need. We think about what the hunters need, and that's uh, it's it's really exciting to be able to study. You're studying another population in in many respects. A scientist thinks about it in, in that way. Um, studying the birds and the people and how can we deliver in a way that that uh, that meets the needs of both of those those populations it's pretty cool well the neat part about it is we've invited a group of of practitioners scientists folks that deliver conservation that hadn't been involved in the past very much and so they're the we're a bit uncomfortable perhaps in that it's challenged some of our beliefs but should gain great comfort in the fact that we are now um, being able to test some of our assumptions, we're able to apply waterfowl conservation in a much more inclusive way than we ever have in the past. Um, okay, so we've kind of gone through NAWAMP, you know, in the last couple episodes, we've, we've walked through um, what it is. And then we've also, this episode, we really got into the joint ventures, which I think are fascinating um, in themselves. And, and one thing I would like to point out before we move on is that people can go online and look up the Black Duck Joint Venture. They can look up the Gulf Coast Joint Venture, Sea Duck Joint Venture, and all the, you know, Playa Lakes Joint Venture that you mentioned, Dale. And and they have what most of these joint ventures, I think all of them have websites that people can learn a little bit more about them and see, you know, who are the partners involved, you know, if is do you involved in this one or that one? Um, and so the information is available. But let's give, before we let you go, Dale, let's just kind of give a very brief overview of, you know, what does NAWAMP mean to our audience? You know, what does NAWAMP mean to the average Ducks Unlimited member? Yeah, as a, a waterfowl conservationist, whether I'm a, a professional or not, uh, and actually in retirement, I'm not sure uh, it even applies anymore. Um, I want to be confident that there's um, a broad strategy, a recognition of the emerging issues that are going to affect waterfowl conservation into the future. And having that framework in the North American plan, given its history, as I mentioned uh, before, with the recent updates and the periodic updates, uh, a, a knowledge and a confidence that going forward, there's, there's somebody um, at the tiller, if you will, um, that the opportunity to consolidate our efforts in the most meaningful and measured way um, how we apply science to the management, how we apply our policy support to making sure we achieve those things, all can be accomplished because we've got this broad plan in place. I also am confident because I see the joint ventures working regionally on those things that affect that particular landscape, the birds in that particular landscape, the people that live there. can be done at a scale at which our implementation makes a great deal more sense as well. You can't accomplish everything we need to do at an international scale. It's got to be delivered at the scale at which the biological, ecological, and social needs apply. And so, uh, no, I'm confident going forward. Um, it, uh, it, it's an exciting um, and, um, as I mentioned earlier, a sea change in the way we view conservation of wildlife uh, in this particular case with waterfowl as being the example and the template that others follow. Dale, this has been a great discussion. We really appreciate you joining us to talk about the NAWAMP and joint ventures and how all of this kind of uh, kind of works together. We've 
we've heard from you some great insights on on the history of the North American and uh, North American Waterfowl Management Plan, and then importantly, uh, a bit about what the future uh, may hold. Also, I know embedded within this conversation are a lot of topics that we uh, likely will have an interest in going back to and discussing in a, a fair bit more detail. And we'll do that in the future as as those. Uh, as those topics emerge or as we have time to do those. But for now, that's going to wrap it up for us. Again, thank you for your time and thanks for joining us. I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, guys. I'd like to thank our guest, Dale Humberg, former Ducks Unlimited chief scientist. Um, I'd like to thank my co-host, Dr. Mike Brazier, for joining us and bringing to light a lot of this information. This is fantastic. Uh, once again, great job to our podcast producer, Clay Baird. He does a fantastic job getting this information out to you. And we'd like to thank you, the listener, for supporting the DU Podcast and Wetlands Conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit www.ducks.org slash DU Podcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the ducks.